can't afford to be too comfortable in your career because the moment you get comfortable, you get complacent. So depending on the duration of the change, then that determines how much benefit, how much effort is involved because there's a lot of risk. Complacency is comfortable. And then when you're transforming, you have to have some justification. And in this case, it's about were we competitive? Was our accounting function cost efficient given the revenues? So integration using APIs or even separate ecosystems to ensure that the data is cleaned up before it's actually transferred. And then making sure once that data is clean and it becomes a single source of truth, then you can look to run pilots such as AI and machine learning and then predictive analytics. Hello and welcome to Tech for Finance, where we help finance professionals leverage technology to level up their lives. I'm your host, Adam Shilton, and in this episode, we're chatting with Dante Healy, who is a freelance finance transformation project manager and trainer for Agile Walker. After starting his career as a management accountant and then financial controller, Dante went on to become the accounting manager at the Ford Motor Company and then a project manager for the Accounting Center of Excellence at Ford Credit. Dante has a passion for bleeding edge slash cutting edge digital technologies in creating business values, is skilled at building digital solutions with his coding knowledge, and enjoyed providing soft skills training to technical teams who struggle to interact with the wider business. In his spare time, Dante is an opinion columnist for CEO World Magazine, creates websites, reads nonfiction, hosts a podcast, visits art exhibitions on occasion, and he's also part of a community community called Lunch Club, where he enjoys one-to-one conversations with interesting people. So thanks for coming on the show, Dante. Thank you, Adam. Pleasure to be here. Sorry, a very, very wordy and quickly, uh, quickly given intro there. My, my apologies. So no, we'll, we'll, we'll hand over to you. So I'm, I'm curious to know, how did you end up moving from sort of more of a traditional finance role um, into to finance transformation, doing what you're doing? So I, I guess there's two tells to that. Uh, one is motivation and then the second piece being situation. So in the early part of my career, I was always doing some form of project. Um, and I was also as part of my career at Ford, I started out in financial reporting, which is basically accounting as well as internal audit. So I ended up having an opportunity to work at a plant in Romania where I was the internal control manager and obviously overseas assignment, great exposure and also being next to the factory, which was a great opportunity to see everything from the sheet metal to the car rolling off the production line to be quality tested. Now the nuance with that is that we took over the plant. And it was previously government owned yeah. and it was involved in a massive restructuring. When we acquired the plant, we did an assessment of the level of staffing. And unfortunately the staff overhead was significantly top heavy. And so we had to do an analysis of the, the team, especially on my side, the financial accounting team. And it turned out that when we did a skills match, the people who were at the most senior levels were not up to the standard we expected for finance people. 
part of it was being able to answer um, direct questions. And the other piece was technology. So even things like Excel, a lot of them hadn't actually experienced using Excel so spreadsheets. Okay. They were actually running systems off of AS400 and dot matrix printers. However, some of the more junior members were quite skilled. So when we did the skills match, obviously we ended up promoting some of the junior members and demoting some of the very senior members. So people who used to be reporting four or five manager management levels above certain managers that we promoted were actually demoted and maybe one or two levels down because we had a flatter organization structure. So as you can imagine, that had an impact on me in terms of motivation because I realized don't keep up with your skills. You can become obsolete pretty quickly when mm. things get disrupted. So from that point on, I got a lot more motivated to upskill. So that was the motivation. And then in terms of situation, when I got back uh, two years later, back to the UK, I was given a soft landing in accounting and that role that I was in was pretty much what I had when I left. So I was given this expectation that doing an overseas assignment would be good for my career. What I found with a global organization is if you're not at your home base, you lose visibility. Mm -hmm. And therefore when the roles came up that I wanted, which were more on the FPNA analytical basis, they were Shall we say they were already filled by people who were earmarked for those positions. Mm. And I've been pigeonholed as a financial reporting slash internal control specialist. So I didn't have anything available that looked interesting. So I had to stick it, stick it out as an accounting manager until, um, I heard from a mentor of mine who said that actually in their financial services division. They're going through a transformation of accounting. They're partway there, but they need someone to finish it off. It seemed like a very risky role, but it was also very exciting. Mm. And I thought, well, either I stay where I am and I get really bored and then become a menace, or I take a risk and try something different. And that's how I got into finance transformation. Fabulous. It's always, it's always good to hear the story. And I, and I think you're, you're dead right, you know, Pierre. If you're not at least conscious of the way that companies and roles are evolving, you know, and, and you stay in that sort of complacent, you know, I'll just, I'll carry on doing what I'm doing. The world changes around you and sometimes without even realizing things change that you've got no control of. So I think, I think you did the right thing there in sort of taking back that control and saying, yeah, this, this is more of future focus for me, I guess. So, so thanks. Thanks for the background. You're welcome. And again, you're right. It's. You can't afford to be too comfortable in your career because the moment you get comfortable, you get complacent and it's better to be overwhelmed than underwhelmed. Well, was in, I think what well, they might be obliterating this. I think it was, uh, Eleanor Roosevelt, wasn't it? That said, do something every day that scares you or challenges you or something like that. Um, so I think that's, that's the sort of mentality we'd be going after more and more, I think. So, so, so coming back to the transformation piece and transformation is a word 
it doesn't have a clear focus really, does it? You know, transformation could apply to quite a lot of things. So, so in this example, obviously we're, we're talking specifically about, about finance transformation, um, relating to technology, I guess is, is probably yeah. as, as accurate as we can get for this discussion. So with that in mind, what, what do you consider to be the, the building blocks of a, of a good finance transformation? So who needs to be involved, um, how's best to structure it, you know, and then not just in terms of, you know, pre and during project, but then how do you really, how do you ensure that the, the benefits of that transformation then realize post projects? Okay. So that's a great question. And to start with any project, you have to start with the business case. So what's the benefit you're going to get for investing all that effort into changing. And that obviously comes with a strategy. So depending on the duration of the change, then that determines how much benefit, how much effort is involved because there's a lot of risk. Complacency is comfortable. And then when you're transforming, you have to have some justification. And in this case, it's about, were we competitive? Was our accounting function cost efficient given the revenues? So when we did a benchmark, we found that we could have, we could do better and we had to. So the, the first pillar was really around how could we reduce costs? And that was through work transfers. So shifting work from central Europe to a low cost location. And then the next pillar was then enabling that next level of deeper, deeper work transfer and optimizing the processes through automation and rationalization of the systems. So we had multiple locations that had been allowed to organically build their account, local accounting functions. And there was not that much alignment. Yeah. So the business case was clear that we could, we should be doing more. And therefore that set the strategy for the future vision. And coming back to your question about how do you set it up? It all starts with where do you get the value and then what's that future target state so the operating model for a finance team which supports the overall business model and fortunately there was also a business transformation of the operations and that had to align we had to align with the business so it was kind of like we were transforming first and it was based on cost efficiency but then the business saw that this was being successful and they decided to, uh, start up their own rationalization, which was framed around consolidation and centralization to a shared service center. Now through that, you get economies of scale, but you also get a certain degree of inflexibility and also disruption in the sense that when you're changing things. Invariably, there's a risk that things may be complicated or you have to staff up extra heads to manage the transition in case things go wrong, almost like hypercare. Yeah. So throughout that process, you, you also need to know where are you and what are your, what are your interim stages on your blueprint? 
So we were tracking project milestones yeah. in order to make sure that through each of the swim lanes, you call them or initiatives. So for example, in order to centralize the accounts payable system, we had to launch a new, we had to roll out a common platform, same with the accounts receivable and also cash management. And there were also different uh, finance pillars that were involved in that and treasury, uh, financial analysis, and also the local accounting and financial management. So commercial finance were involved in that transformation. They had their own pillars and where my team were involved were centralizing the accounts payable, accounts receivable function, dealing with payments and accounting journals. So in the end, what we managed to do was centralize about 76 heads out of Europe and, and distribute it across Asia and also our central, our head offices in the UK. So just paraphrasing you there a little bit then business case first, we need to be working towards something before we do anything at all. And, and I think that's valid, especially at the moment, you know, when, when you look at the current economic climate, you know, you need to be sure that anything that you do is moving you towards a better state rather than just, you know, automating a poor process, for example. So, so I think that's, that's pretty valid. But then on top of that, you've got the concept of who does this affect? So you mentioned there, not only have you got the, the subdivisions and finance, you know, APA, our cash management and that sort of stuff. But it was also tied into a, a wider digital transformation initiative there as well. So sometimes we do have a habit of looking at things in silos, don't we? You know, I work in finance, this is the lay of the land according to me. But doing something in a silo doesn't work anymore. We know that. You know, so so that comes back to your point about taking those 75 people and, and aligning them with each other. Yeah. So so that's fair. So I think there's, there's also a point that you raised there that needs to be pointed out as well, which is the, the milestone management. And I think that seems common sense for anybody that has a, an experience in managing projects and has a project management background like yourself. Yeah. So, so if we've got a deadline, if we've got something to achieve, then we need to break it down into these phases. As I've mentioned on the podcast before, I have quite a lot of experience for smaller businesses. And, and I do believe that there are actually some ideas that smaller businesses can pinch from larger organizations. And so, and I'll try and stop myself from, from speaking too much, but quite often a small business, because they've got limited resource and bandwidth, rely too much on the supplier to tell them what those milestones are. And, and it's great, but that supplier can't tell you as a business how that ties in with your internal processes, how it ties in with the other projects that you've got. Yeah. So internally having a think about what those milestones are going to be and what do, what needs to happen at what time is just as important for them as it is for the people that are delivering the solution. And um, the second question is, can we do this ourselves or do we have to bring in somebody like Adante to help support this transformation? Because again, lots of people do sometimes think, well, we'll just do it ourselves. Yeah, but in doing so, they're restricting their, their bandwidth. Yeah, so I don't know whether you've seen. Yeah, and 
that's true because doing it yourself, it's going to take a lot longer, even being brought in as a project manager. I didn't have a project management background, at least not formally. And I realized quickly there are different roles within there and different specializations. You can be a scheduled jockey, which means you're tracking just the milestones, or you can be something more hands-on like a business analyst where you're mapping out the business process. You're creating a formal business requirements document that gets translated into a technical specification that goes to IT in order to build the automation, for example, that you need yeah. within that, you have to be looking at more than just mapping out what's already there. You have to be keeping an eye out for opportunities, process inefficiencies, things that you have to challenge and ask, well, why is it done this way? And there may have been a good and valid reason, but you have to always question it and see, can I do this better? Because there's also a lot of opportunity for cost savings. Yeah. And, and within that, you get the benefit when you're doing it on a large scale, you can compare different locations and see, you can benchmark them and see, well, this, this process is actually better than our central process. Let's build some of those best practices into our own processes, or you could be seeing that, yeah, what we're doing is much better and we need to just deploy it out into the location. It's all based on as well, a strong team. So in the early stages, and I'll count myself in that, I didn't have the necessary project management skills at the start. I realized I had to get upskilled very quickly, which is why I got motivated to get myself formally trained, both in business analysis, as well as project management and then program management, because towards the end, it was growing into a program where I was managing multiple system launches at the same time. And you mentioned benchmarking it a couple of times when you just explained that process. Um, and, it, and it's a question that wasn't in the, the preset question, so, so don't worry if you can't answer, but the businesses that are doing the, the right things or what we'd say to be the right things, which is not just trying to improve a process that already exists, but trying to build based on a process or an end result. If they don't know what the benchmark is or what they need to be aiming for, how can businesses go about benchmarking themselves against other industry leaders? Do you, do you, do you have sort of a set of go-to resources or, or, or sort of a, a location for people to start unearthing some of these, these benchmark reports and, and some of this performance analysis? So the time I was using, I was leveraging a lot of the available resources internally. We had, um, APQC as well as CEB, which is now Gartner. And they did a lot of benchmarking studies. So I had access to the portals and I was able to pull out data on that and also best practices. So there were a few white papers there that I relied on and leveraged, um, four ideas as well as just a sense check work, whether what we were doing was, uh, correct, or at least closely aligned. And then thinking beyond that, you know, you have to go beyond best practice best practice gets you to parity and then thinking more innovatively will get you to competitive advantage. Mm. No, hundred percent. 
Yeah, yeah, and 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 I think that innovative innovative piece is is crucial again because yes, you can you know you can go through the Gartner and Deloitte, you know, all of the mainstream providers to say, look, you know, let's download white papers, benchmark reports to 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 assess where we are in the industry, but that doesn't account for the unknowns. Yeah. So, so what, what is that gap that's going to allow us to um, innovate? You know, what, what is that gap that allows us to differentiate, you know, and that's, that's the trickier piece, isn't it? You know, because yeah. that, that does rely on creativity and, and an element of its fluidity against logic and structure, I guess. Yeah. And we're all, we're all busy as well. So if you were stuck in the day-to-day -day routine, it's hard to, it takes a lot of effort to step back and think bigger picture and think, well, are we doing the right things? Do we feel we're succeeding in this marketplace? And also, I mean, you can see in your bottom line, there's opportunity there. If you're not making, if you don't think you're making as much profit as your competitors, or if there are areas where you just challenge, well, why are we spending on these, these income lines? Is there opportunity to, um, reduce it or should we be doing more on the, on the revenue side? Yeah. And, and just thinking out loud, it's, it's a bit of a tangent, but I've been working my way through a book called Loon Shops, L-O-O-N-S-H-O-T-S. Yeah. Um, could you, you know, the, the concept of a moon shot is like, you know, we want to take ourselves to the moon and a loon shot is crazy ideas that change the world, right? And, and just going back to your point there about, you know, being busy and not necessarily being able to see the bigger picture. I sometimes find that reading, you know, content that isn't aligned with my role in my industry and that sort of stuff can sometimes pr provoke ideas. So Loon Shops is a good one because it's a study of all of the businesses that broke crown, um, that broke boundaries by essentially allowing like a, almost like a creative incubator within their business. So it's so right. Well, you, you focus on the. The pie in the sky stuff, you know, you, you spend your time focusing on that and then we'll have a process of investing, whether it makes it into, into the, the, the roadmap or not, I suppose when that became more mainstream was it, it was Google, right. That was saying, you know, was it a day of the week or something like that? Do, do whatever you like, you know, and, and I think stuff like Google maps came out of that, didn't it? So I think, I think there's a lot to be said for fostering that sort of, um, creativity within an organization. Anyway, I'll share the links in, in the show notes, but yeah, if you haven't read it, Loon Shots is, is quite a good one, but. Back to the tech, mm -hmm. so from, from the work that you're doing at the moment, what sort of technologies are you seeing having the greatest impact on, on finance teams at the moment? Again, another good question. And I think with the advent of XPNA, key thing is really integrating those various systems. So you've got your HR, you've got your CRM. And then on the finance side, you've got your ERP and your EPM or CPM. So it's, it's really getting those data sources talking to each other. So integration using APIs or even separate ecosystems to ensure that the data is cleaned up before it's actually transferred and then making sure once that data is clean and it becomes a single source of truth, then you can look to run pilots um, such as AI and machine learning and then predictive analytics but it's facilitating getting the data quality right otherwise you, if you don't have good quality data 
that you've got no chance on AI or machine learning, or you can try to apply it based on approximate mathematical models, but the more granularity you get, the better the quality of the analysis. And, and for those that aren't familiar with the term, how would you describe XPNA compared to XPNA? Yes, it's more collaborative. Whereas, you know, FPNA is, I guess, planning assumes that you're planning in a silo. I guess XPNA is more holistic, talking to HR, talking to IT, talking to sales and marketing and operations getting them more involved in the planning process and getting that buy-in on the operational performance assumptions that you're going to tie to your financial performance. So it becomes more of a, shall we say, rigorous exercise than doing it in a, a lab, a finance lab, shall we say, in your ivory tower. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Uh, very good. But you, but you did write about the dates. Yeah. And... Yeah, people sometimes go overboard with data and it becomes a bit of an obsession and you can lose your lives too. Um, so I'm sure there would, there could be a totally different discussion on how accurate is accurate. But, but what you were saying there is, you know, we, we need to get as, as near as damn it to our accurate information before we can scale. Yeah. Because if you've got a process that's feeding partially accurate information into the back end, do you want that volume to increase to the point where your predictions are inaccurate? No, you don't. You know, so, so, and I wrote a post about it recently, which is the, the kind of concept of the difference between a robotic process automation and an AI. Okay. Um, so robotic, I, again, I, I won't go off on a tangent, but robotic process automation, obviously that is not AI. It's basically automating the manual stuff that you don't want to do. Yeah. Rigid, you know, um, this is your instruction, do it automatically instead of a person doing it. With AI adds in that creative element and that sort of more human brain emulator type stuff isn't just following a process, it's then additive. So it's adding information and making predictions that weren't there. And, and my viewpoint is a lot of people now are seeing, you know, all of the, the AI and especially with chat GPT and all of that sort of stuff, you know, AI is in bright, shiny lights and organizations are thinking, I need AI in my business right now. Um, but often they miss the first step which is getting the basic automation. Yeah. You can't go from completely manual, you know, administrative processes to building in AI on top of that. You do have to go through the steps to at least automate at a base level before you can start leveraging some of these advanced technologies. I don't know whether that aligns with your thinking or not. Yeah, it does. And in my experience, we have run pilots with robotic process automation. And essentially what you're doing is you're replacing a person with a desktop and they're basically doing manual keystroke, uh, automating manual keystrokes. So data entry between two systems, as if a person was doing it. So it will read from one system into a form on the other system. And there are, when we did, when I tried to do a business case around it, there were very few Use, use cases where it made complete sense just because the work I was doing was project related and therefore didn't really warrant a long enough time horizon where I could get the payback because mm. basically when you're doing low cost outsourcing anyway, you're basically replacing one low paid or a, a hand, a small handful of low paid 
manual data entry class with a portion of a very expensive software developer's time. So again, and then when you have the, uh, when you have the fact that you still need to pay for the licenses and the computer for the robot, unless you've got enough work for them to be running 24, seven, seven days a week, there's no economic, well, minimal economic benefit. And you know, you factor on top the cost of actually changing processes, then there's very limited, uh, benefit. So in that regard, it was better just to get the processes right, align them to the system. So the system will automate it. And for example, I did use some, I did use some RPA to enter, um, supplier information. We had one location where they had 7,000 suppliers, which yeah. was really funny because it was <laughs> every other, the next largest had about 500 That's and. And it was more about a business process where, where they had multiple small suppliers rather than one consolidated for one particular service. I won't go into that, but yeah. So again, it's, it's, it's thinking really, when you look at the context, you have to think, am I automating the right thing or am I just augmenting an inefficient process? Yeah. And, and again, you're, you're dead right. Cause. So, some elements of automation are no brainers, right? If we've got somebody manually keying invoices, you know, it takes them half a day every day to do it where, where a bot could capture that information and process for great. You, you've got your business case there. There's, there's a return. But as you just said there, if you've already got base level of automation in there and, and the base is covered, there can be such things as too much automation. You know, so, so you get into this territory of diminishing ter returns whereby, you know, you, you've, you've swept up the 80% to get those real gains, and then you may be wasting your time with the additional 20%. Yeah. So it's like you're also, the point. You're also digging your heels in as well. You're, you're building in what's called technical debt in the sense that part of my remit, uh, was to replace legacy systems. And a lot of the inherent risk was they had a mature process, but they also had systems where they were scared. If we, if we can't do everything that our old systems did, there is a, there is a risk that the business would, could, could suffer some financial loss, reputational damage because we're not servicing a customer or not paying a supplier on time. Mm -hmm. However, over time you become less competitive and it got to the stage where we had one system that was owned by a 76 year old developer. It was, he was the sole owner and the sole expert. He was busy training up some people to, you know, manage it, but it was essentially his business. So the only, so that was something that was on the risk register, which we had to replace quite quickly. And, uh, we had a project that lasted two years, gradually phasing out various bits of functionality over time uh, and taking out chunks of the operational processes, which were basically customer transactions, uh, and also payments. So that piece was, um, that was a big win, but in theory, if we couldn't do it. If we couldn't take them onto the corporate systems because they had their own local system, 
we would have ended up not being able to uh, roll out the the new global ERP, and and that would have meant potentially that the business would have had to have run on Excel spreadsheets and had an army trying to replace if the system couldn't be supported. And you know, with software, when you get regular updates, upgrades on operating systems, hardware you're looking at a serious uh, obsolescence risk. I've never heard the term technical debt before. I might start using that one more. It's a great buzzword. Yes. It's a lovely buzzword. So what, what are some of the, the emerging technologies then that you're getting excited about? Uh, it's hard to say, really. <laughs> so many. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think AI is, is pretty interesting. Um, on the finance side, it's, I guess we're seeing a lot more data visualization and to an extent we can see that there are new open source codes that are enabling people to do, um, to do more flexible analysis without having to necessarily learn how to code themselves. I think that's, that's great. That's exciting because it democratizes data, data analysis. Yeah. And I guess from my side, it's, it's more, I'm more on the, I'm, I'm get, I guess I'm quite a simple guy. It's more about scale and dealing with large data volumes. So big data sets where you can do more deeper analysis with very granular data because I love Excel and I use it a lot. I do a lot of data modeling in Power Query before I commit anything to code just to sense check it. Mm -hmm. But Excel is quite, as, as a code base, it's quite heavy because it's so feature rich. Yeah. And therefore, if you, if you're doing, if you're doing any sort of analysis on, on tables that are more than a hundred megabytes, you're gonna, you're gonna be running it for potentially 30 minutes. And, you know, data latency is one of those things. Whereas if you're running with, um, say parallel processing on a spark cluster, you can get the same result in like seconds. So I guess there's the advantage really, when you talk about why, why do people trash Excel? I don't think, I think Excel is great for what it does, but it doesn't handle the same level of volume of data that say a good piece of code or even some of these low code tools can handle and therefore you can get much richer insights. I think you, I think you right to emphasize the load, the low code piece. And I, th I think it's, it's clever how these technologies are emerging now, because when you're using a system, you don't always appreciate that you're using a low code application. So for us, and, and I use a really simple example, something like, um, Zapier. Hmm. So, so previously, if you wanted to integrate something like, say, and you know all about this, right? You, you're going through a systems integration project at the moment, but you know, traditionally for complex integrations, you need to pay a developer to connect the two. Yeah. And then you'd be reliant on whatever work was completed. Um, and then you've got the associated maintenance and all that sort of thing. Now we live in a world of SaaS, whereby you can sign up for a Zapier account and you can just choose what fields map from one system to the other. Yeah. You know, so, so that's a low code technology without people realizing that it's a low code technology, just cause they're thinking, right, well, I just want my systems together. Yeah. 
But I think in terms of resource, and this is where it's going to, going to be interesting and, and we won't go down the rabbit hole of, of chat GPT because I've spoken enough about it and I've written enough about it. But if we take the example of VBA code, for example, so, so I've seen videos and, and I've shared it on the blog of people asking chat GPT to generate VBA, VBA code. And, and one of the examples was writing a VBA code to um, merge these 20 Excel spreadsheets into one, for example. Yeah. And, and I don't need knowledge of VBA code to ask the question and to get a pretty decent result at the other end. Now, I always caveat that by saying, double check your work. Yeah. You know, test it. Yeah, test it. You know, test it. Because yeah. just because an, an AI bot gives a credible answer and it appears to be working first time round doesn't mean that it scales and it is actually going to work properly. So, so I always caveat that by saying double check your work. And, but what that does mean is that in this world where good people are becoming harder and harder to find, they can do more in less time. Yeah. You know, so instead of having to go through, you know, complex training exercises or learn a new skill, you know, which can often take years to develop, we've now got applications that can give them a result in minutes, as you, as you say. So I think if we can, even the playing field, where the, to the point where I wouldn't say junior, but, but, you know, people at all scales of the finance operation can produce their own data, do a bit of modeling, visualize it and tell those stories. It's only going to be for the benefit of the organization, right? I think data democracy is where you have to be. It puts the power in information. And when I say power, I mean empowerment because people can make better decisions when they're, where they're better informed. So it puts that empowerment at the hands of people closest to where they need to make the decision so they can fact check, well, should I be doing this? And again. You don't want, you don't want to be the bottleneck when people are asking you for data all the time or certain insights. Can I have this report? Can I have that report? I remember when I was, um, financial controller, we had one IT person for a mid-sized company and he was a go-to person, even though he reported directly into me and he was managing the database, but there were people who were taking up his time. And that invariably meant he was sometimes late on some of the things I had him working on. So. Yeah, yeah, ab absolutely. And, and from a personal perspective, and I, I don't do much, much modeling and you know, all of that sort of stuff. I, I'm more focused on the, the tech and the enablement side of things that I guess. Yes. And but from a personal perspective, you can actually use your own data from an improvement perspective, you know, so, so even if you're not having conversations with other people in the organization that's telling stories of data, I've, I've recently a blog post about it, you know, just tracking your own time can surface a huge amount of data that you would previously have been completely oblivious about. You know, I, I challenge everyone to, even if they're not using a clever app, just write down what you're spending time on in notepad every day. And then by the end of the day, look back over that and think, does that weigh up with what I think I probably would have done today? Because it's always drastically different. So, so I think as well as data being obviously invaluable to businesses and business communication, I think there's a real gap in people using their own data for self-improvement as well. Yeah. And, uh, so you recommended a book, I'll recommend a book, James Clear, um, 
atomic habits. So really falling down to the level of your habits and systems rather than rising to the level of your goals and aspirations. As they say, amateurs focus on strategy, professionals focus on logistics. So if you really want to be productive, you have to have the systems and processes in place. And it's funny, I can probably tell you for nothing in a large organization, you'll find that most people where they lose their time is in meetings. Yes. And I know that because I have an AI tool. It's a friend of mine who has his own company and it basically, you can load it on your desktop and it tracks your internet activity. So I find that a lot, a huge chunk of my time tends to get eaten up by meetings, but then as a project manager, that's what I have to do. A lot of my work is communication alignment. And in this sense, I'm being productive, but then you also have to prepare for the meetings and yeah. there's also time needed to think through a problem or a challenge and analyze data and even get data in order to make those recommendations. Yeah, no, you did right. And, and some, something that you, you just mentioned there about having time to, to think about something. People just don't build that in anymore. You know, we, we go back to back teams or zoom meetings, yeah. a very level thought in between. So another thought, um, and it's, it's, it's old hat now, I suppose, um, but it's high performance habits, which I suppose is similar to, to atomic habits. That's, that's Brendan Burchard, I think his name is or something like that. Um, but he talks about the concept of, of release, I think is the term that he uses between meetings. So in the five minutes before a meeting, relax and then think, how do I get the best out of this? You know, what, what am I hoping to achieve from this conversation? Because otherwise you just get swept up in the noise yeah. and we've gone on a complete tangent here, haven't we? But I, I, th I think it's valid, you know, points to date, you know, whatever gets measured gets managed yeah. and, and the better that we can be with ourselves and start, you know, tweaking those habits to the point where we're becoming more efficient can then have a ripple effect. You know, so, so yeah, no, no harm in bettering oneself, I guess. Yeah. And there's no, you know, it, it does come back to first principles. It's about being more efficient with your resources. In this case, time is the most valuable resource you have. Yeah. yeah. And what do you, can you say what that AI tool is that you use or is yeah, it? Yeah, sure. It's rise.io. I can send you a link. I actually have an affiliate link, but I won't send you that. <laughs> It's funny, <laughs> but yeah, right. it's rises in R I S E R I Z E yeah. Z Z uh, zebra. Okay. Rise.io. Rise. Yeah. Fabulous. So I'm going to continue on a tangent a little bit because I mentioned in the intro that you do a bit of writing for CEO world. Yeah. You got a favorite? Well, I've only written two articles and <laughs> that is like, it's so hard, you know, do I choose my son or do I choose my daughter? It's like, <laughs> you know, and, um, in all honesty, that's because I've got my own website now and I tend to, when I have time to do blogs, I tend to go there and create my own content and, you know, I have full ownership of the release, although to be fair to CEO world. They're pretty quick with publishing my articles. So, and it's high, it's, it's a high, high traffic website. Whereas mine, I know the data on mine. 
Yeah, it's yeah. so small, it's embarrassing, but <laughs> you got to start somewhere. Exactly. Exactly. Um, but yeah, I guess given, given what we've spoken about, you, you won't be surprised to hear that I have two articles. One is maximizing your personal productivity, which was the most recent one. Okay. And this, the one that is my favorite is top three reasons why finance transformations fail. And that one basically distills my experiences at the time I wrote it as to what were the lessons I learned from having those setbacks when I was dealing with those finance transformations as a project manager slash functional specialist trying to achieve an outcome whilst learning on the job. Yeah. So the key things are really clear on what you, what you need to do and why. So the strategy, then executing it well. So how you do it. And then finally, and this is really key is getting buy-in from the leadership. So if the executive sponsor commits to a transformation, they really need to have some commitment on their side because you will get blockers. You will get resistance from other parts of the business. And you do need to get that alignment up front. Otherwise, at my level, at the time, it can become very difficult if there are very senior people on other parts of the business that are resistant to that change. And they may have valid reasons, but we need to get the right trade-offs in place between all, all of the various functions. Yeah, and that's, that sponsorship, that sponsorship is so important because so somebody needs to be banging on the table to say, this is why we're doing it. These are the reasons why we went down this route. And these are, these are the benefits we're likely to realize. Because if that is not continuous, then pe people lose track. You know, as we've just discussed, people get swept up in their own wells, don't they? And then, you know, six months later, they start thinking, hang on, why, why are we doing this again? So it takes somebody to, 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 to steer that and make sure. And, and it goes back to the question I asked earlier about, you know, how do you ensure that the benefits are realized when you go through any of these finance transformation projects? Is, is one thing to have somebody banging on desk during a project to say, we need to get in by this date, you know, we need the benefits, but it's a, it's a completely different thing once you've gone live and you need to then continue to make sure that you realize the benefits of the solution. So it's not just during the project, it's, it's afterwards as well. Right? Absolutely. Otherwise you're in danger of having someone whose job has been taken away from them in theory, and they still working there, but with much less to do. And that's okay, but they should be gamefully occupied. And that doesn't necessarily mean, um, making them redundant or, um, removing them from the business, but getting their time deployed elsewhere so that they're still productive. They're still contributing. And on the flip side, the other piece is when you're replacing legacy systems, the business case around that is, and this is the beautiful part is that you save a lot on hardware, you save maintenance costs and you save licenses. Yeah. So you have to go back and make sure those, those savings are really realized. Yeah. Yeah. We'll come, it all comes back to the ROI, doesn't it? Yeah. 
because yeah. And there's, there's all, there's all, there always should be an after the fact exercise that, that does take what was the original business case and then weighing that up against the actual results achieved. Yeah. So, yeah. so that's, that's one thing, but no, you, you definitely, uh, yeah. Yeah. Cool. So the one question that I always ask, uh, and you've mentioned one already, rise.io with a Z, but are there any other apps or gadgets? Maybe just one in either your personal or your professional lives that you couldn't live without. My smartphone. And you can't see it because of the green screen. Uh, it has all my apps. That's yeah. as simple as that. And it means that even though it's, it's basically a mobile tracking device and edge device collecting all my data, but I'd be lost without it because it also has all my apps. So for example, my banking app, only recently I discovered I can pay in checks by taking a photo through the app. I mean, how cool is that? Is that styling? Is that styling? No, it's, uh, it's, it's a, it's a normal high street bank. I don't want to, no, just no, in no, case that's anyone, sorry, anyone's that's... listening, but no, no, it's not, um, it's not a FinTech. It's right. just, but then most of the incumbents are actually adopted fintech technologies so yeah it's always worth checking if your bank has an app check the features and functionality yeah any other favorite apps i have a kanban app it's actually one that i use to manage my personal tasks it's called blue and it's b-l-u-e dot c-c yeah and that that one is it's a nice one because it's a fixed monthly fee, but I have unlimited Kanban boards. But mind you, you can use Jira. You can use the free G uh, tier on Jira. So anything that gives you um, a task management system, that w that's that's another personal productivity hack. I'd yeah. recommend. Yeah. I've I've been using Notion, which is also free. But yes. this it's a bit. Yeah, Notion, I mean, it's, it's great. Um, it gets a bit of criticism because it's one of those sort of do a bit of everything, but maybe not do one thing well. Um, but it serves me absolutely fine because it, it replaced Evernote as my note taking app. Mm. And then it replaced, um, Trello as mine, as my Kanban, because you can, you can have an embedded database that you can turn into a Kanban. So I can have my notes to do some, my Kanban in, in one place. Granted, it probably doesn't go to the level that you'd probably want it to with a dedicated app, but it serves me just fine. Yeah, it does. I, I've got Notion as well. And, you know, my wife, my wife swears by it. And just, was it a couple of months ago, they deployed the beta version of their AI writer, which isn't that far removed from chat GPT. It actually generates AI content as well. And I've been testing that. In Notion? Yes. How do I not know this? <laughs> How do I set that up? Um, you go to your account and I think under settings, there should be a box where you can opt in. It's like a radial box. It says AI. I am going to have a look at this. But right. I, I, I'm, I'm not going to go now because we'll be, we'll be here forever whilst I try and click around in Notion, but I'm going to do that as soon as we come off this call. 
amazing stuff. Thank you. You learn something every day, right? You're very welcome. I, yeah. I'm learning every day as well. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and the, sorry, bonus question. And I was going to ask this earlier on before I, I ask you to tell people where they can find out more about you. Mm -hmm. Is the, um, is the lunch club thing. So, so lunch club. And I, I had a bit of a look we mentioned when we spoke online and it's, it's basically you, you enter your interests yeah. don't you? and, and then it, it, it matches you with, with people that, that are similar. Is, is that the theory and you just hang out over a coffee over lunch or do you, is that how it works? It was originally set up pre pandemic and lunch club used to be, as it suggests, a face to face in-person meeting over lunch. And therefore it had to be local, but then during the pandemic, it went online. And therefore that was what, when I was being isolated, I used it. It was actually introduced to me by a friend. And I used that during the pandemic when I wasn't, uh, when I wasn't working cause I was in, bet in between projects, I used it to keep myself relatively sane. What sort, of, what sort of people have you spoken to? Lunchclub.com, by the way, for people that are listening. What sort yes. of conversations have you had? Uh, partners in venture capital firms, tech CEOs, startup founders, uh, things like that. I didn't uh, actually add consultants in, in various innovation spaces, um, teachers and everything else in between. Wow. I, I, I will sign up, but as you and I have discussed on this call, there's often not enough hours in the day, is there? Agreed. <laughs> so, but no, de definitely. I mean, there, there is nothing wrong with connecting to new and interesting people. Like a hundred percent, if there's a way to, to do that, that makes it easy, then, you know, you can see where some of these, some of these platforms gain real success currently. So now I'll definitely check it out. Cool. All right, Dante. So where's, where's the best people, place for people to find you? Your podcast is called, is it business breaks? Yep. Correct. And it was started with my friend and I, and I, I think I need to come up with a story behind it. I haven't written the script for that, but my friend and I were just basically setting the world to rights during COVID. Again, we meet on zoom and I decided, well, why don't we repurpose this content and turn it into a podcast and then. From there, it kind of extended to interviewing other people. So, uh, but essentially it's me and my friend, John Byrne having a fireside chat. Very good. But in terms of where you can connect, first place would be LinkedIn. You can follow me or connect with me online. And I have all my links in my profile. And the website is dantehealy.com. Oh, very good. And that's uh, D-A-N-T-E-H-E-A-L-Y. Exactly. Yeah. And that's the same on LinkedIn. So LinkedIn slash Dan Tahili and then Dan .com. Yeah. Perfect. All right, mate. Well, absolute pleasure having a chat. Thanks for coming on. No, pleasure to be here, Adam. Thank you for having me. Yeah, no worries at all. Hopefully we'll, we'll have a round two in the future. Have a bit more of an attic because we've never got enough time for these sorts of things, have we? But uh, no, really good. Thanks ever so much. You're welcome. Thank you. Need a bit. Cheers. Thanks, mates.